0: one of the good things that's come of this is that that when we do look at our multi-generational leadership structure at most of the businesses across the U.S. Now, whether it's you, you still have baby boomer, boomers in leadership jobs or Gen Xers or millennials or what whatever generation that we're talking about now, when you look at this now, I think the uh, the desire to authorize and to continue to support some semblance of working from home or remote learning will continue. Um, and I think that will continue for several years after we officially declare that the pandemic is is over. And that's going to be, in part, a really good thing that we allow this to continue.
1: This is the ORISE FeatureCast a special edition of Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join your hosts, Michael and Jenna for conversations with ORISE research program participants and their mentors, as they talk about their experiences and how they are helping shape the future of science. Welcome to the ORISE Cast.
2: Happy Wednesday, happy 2021. Jenna, can you believe?
3: No. It's 2021. It's time, though. I'm ready for it.
2: We made it. Hopefully, <laughs> it will not be the same burning dumpster fire that 2020 yeah. was.
3: Here's to wishing.
2: <laughs> Anything's exactly. got to be better,
3: right? Anything.
2: Exactly. And it's early, so we're still hopeful. And speaking of hopeful, you know, 2020 was a challenge for the workforce, not just our workforce um, here at ORISE and mm-hmm. ORQ, but at you know workforces across the country. And one of the things that we've been talking about is workforce resiliency, particularly with the scientific workforce. And we have some amazing experts on this episode so we're going to introduce them and get to work because we got a lot to cover we do so i would like to introduce craig Lehman, leanne pennington and jennifer terrell to the ORISE feature cast um craig leanne and jennifer welcome
0: thank you glad to be here thank you Michael. glad
2: to have you if you all will um one at a time Tell us who you are and what you do for the organization. And Craig, we will start with you.
0: Hi, thank you, Michael. Yeah, my name is Craig Lehman. Uh, if you want official title, not sure that you do or if that matters at all. Uh, but my title is Director of STEM Workforce Development. So I oversee our, uh, well, what we call our Research Participation Program, Uh, business line, and that includes our research fellowships and internships for, of course, the Department of Energy, but uh, also for 20-plus other federal agencies uh, across the United States.
2: There is a lot going on in your world, sir.
0: (laughs) You're, You're absolutely correct. It's always busy, and it's never boring, so that makes for a really excellent workplace environment.
2: I'm sure it does. Leanne Pennington, (laughs) tell us about you.
1: Um, Yeah, thanks, Michael and Jenna. So I have been at ORU for a long time and and had several roles. I came here um, and still claim to be a labor economist and like to look at the labor market for the STEM workforce. Uh, I have also managed programs uh, as a group manager here uh, for several federal sponsors, uh, research participation programs for about 10 years. And I've done quite a bit of program evaluation and assessment. Um, Currently, I am most interested in sort of the uh, looking at our data and our trend and and what our research participation programs look like in the past and moving forward, which should be particularly interesting given that they may look a little different moving forward. So uh, I'm kind of right now thinking of myself as kind of a data analyst uh, person for the organization.
2: Awesome. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to the looking forward part of um, our conversation in a little bit. Um, Jennifer Terrell.
3: Thank you so much. Um, I work with the K-12 STEM outreach group here at OREU, and we do outreach programs for K-12 students and K-12 teachers um, all across the country.
2: Excellent. And you stay I mean, you all stay extremely busy. There's always so much stuff going on in um, workplace development world. And we love talking about it. I can't even count the number of stories, podcasts, all the stuff we've done to talk about everything that um, your group does. And I'm really excited to kind of dig in and talk about the idea of scientific workforce resilience. In well, we're calling it a post-pandemic world, but again, it's January, so um, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, tail end of the pandemic world um, by the time we get there. So um, here's where I'd like to start, I think, and um, we when we had so for everyone's benefit. We had a planning conversation about this conversation. It was sort of a meeting before the meeting um, to sort of think about what we might talk about related to workforce STEM workforce development at ORISE. And one of the topics that came up was the idea of never wasting a crisis. So our workforce, our, Customers, workforce—you know—had to make some transitions and pivots um, to remote work, to virtual learning, you know, all of those things. Um, so, I guess I'd like to start with, and Craig, I think this is a question for you: um, What have we learned as a result of all of the pivots and changes and transitions that took place? Um, I guess, mostly in the summer, but I suspect also in the fall to some extent.
0: Yeah, thanks, Michael, Jenna. That is, is, gosh, it's somewhat of a loaded question. I don't, (laughs) (laughs) I think we need at least an hour.
2: Just just, for that uh, question.
0: Just to create the outline. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it, it really is, it has been drinking from the fire hose, fire drill. How many other scenes can we come up with? Um, I mean, let's let's go back, which was nearly twelve months now. Uh, here we are, January. It was nearly twelve months when we really began to hear about this new novel coronavirus. Mm-hmm. We didn't really understand what was happening. I think most of us were in disbelief and in January, February timeframe of, of 2020. But by the time March came, uh, we were no longer in disbelief about the virus. I think we we're in disbelief about what was getting ready to happen to us with quarantining and how we were gonna navigate um, this, you know, these learning opportunities that we have here at at ORU and, and, and ORISE. And what that's really going to mean for the hosting facilities of, of these young scientists and engineers, and how how are we going to continue to ensure that that final step of the learning process happens? So that that final step is that, that experiential learning process, the hands-on learning activity, again, that we call research participation programs that 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 manipulates in the form of, of this this internship or, the, or this fellowship And so we know um, and, and I don't want to overstep my bounds here, especially that the Leanne's on the call and, and and she is our expert labor economist so she knows m- much more about this than me but in, in order to ensure a competitive, economy in a competitive United States, we've got to make sure that we train our scientists and engineers, all of our STEM professionals, all of our professionals really, uh, properly, and that Mm -hmm. they get the training they need in order to be able to impact profoundly the innovation structure that they're going to need, uh, in the future. So, you know, I say all that to say, I'll tell you the first thing that we learned real quickly, When we when we talk about uh, all the hosting facilities, the national laboratories, the other federal laboratories, we learned that we weren't really set up to uh, to conduct large scale efforts at uh, at training, these training programs remotely. So we knew that first couple of weeks. So uh, and I think you've titled this section Never Waste a Crisis. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we did. We did we did we did not waste the crisis because we knew we could not we could not afford to waste the crisis. So you look the. you look at our workforce, you look at the workforce of the hosting facilities and our our workforce, Michael, as you know, is comprised of Ph.D. researchers and educators and, and non Ph.D. researchers and educators and business professionals, veterans teachers like Jennifer, um, that are are smart and and creative and incredibly up to the challenge when it comes to these things. So we very quickly, uh, working with some of our sister laboratories and some of our partners, put together plans on how we were going to be able to host remote internships and virtual internships. Because we knew that What we couldn't do, Michael, is we couldn't really delay this learning process. So we had to make sure the learning process happened to the best of of our ability and the hosting facility ability.
2: Right. And you couldn't say... Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and you couldn't say, well, let's, you know, hang on for a couple of months or, you know, wait till this thing blows over. And, you know, I mean, we didn't know what we were facing. So you just sort of had to jump in, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, quarantine didn't mean stop doing everything. It meant use the technology that you had at hand and determine out new and innovative ways to implement said technology in this this new learning environment, which is exactly what we did. But recall the multi-generations that are in the workforce that are principal investigators that are learning, that are uh the, the, the student interns and the postdocs so we've got all these different thinkers and creative thinkers so we had to figure out a way to communicate uh effectively and we had to figure out a way in order to conduct research and conduct their technical projects offsite. and so we moved very swiftly in order to do that we produced multiple documents training materials uh, we just worked with our partners and we really just made it happen. And right. the first things we learned was we knew it was going to be incredibly challenging. And then we learned it's going to be okay. And we knew it was going to be okay because we had the wherewithal in order to uh, to think past and solve the challenge that, that, that we were facing.
2: Craig, are there examples of... And I'm certain there are to the, again, to the extent that you can share them of hosting facilities and, or, you know, specific programs where things went successfully. And I I know there are, you know, I mean, we, we came through (laughs) the kind of the height of the pandemic with, it feels like from my perspective anyway, with flying colors. So um, what are some of the examples of success stories?
0: Well, yeah, we have we have many examples of success stories and, and certainly my colleagues can jump in here uh here as well. But uh just to kind of to, to illustrate the, the listeners of what we're talking about, in in a normal year, Michael, we will host anywhere between uh eight thousand to nine thousand research participants in these programs, right? And then Jennifer Tyrell's group they may host another 1,000 k 12 teachers and students throughout all the event programs right. that, that they host. And and I'd like for Jennifer to talk about one of her successes, the Appalachian uh, Regional Commission program um, that, that she hosted back in July, which is, wow, Jennifer, I guess seven months ago now. But <laughs> just to kind of illustrate where we were, and, and again, Leanne's our data person. She can talk about this a little more. But at one point, eighty percent of all of our program participants were participating remotely. Wow, eighty percent. We had successfully moved all of these participants offsite, out of the hosting facility. That was quite the challenge. In order working with our partners, in order to in order to do that. Uh, Michael, if you allow me, I'm going to turn it over to Jennifer and let her talk about her successes with the ARC program.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
3: Yeah, thank you, Craig. You know I'm um, sitting on the edge of my seat, antsy, to talk about ARC as soon as Michael mentions successes during the pandemic. ARC was one of the very clear successes that we had in the K-12 group. Michael, I know that we've talked about this on the podcast before, so hopefully some of the listeners heard that story mm-hmm. um, and have some background information on it. <clears throat> we, um, we host a program for the Appalachian Regional Commission where in a usual year, we bring students to Oak Ridge and they do research on-site at ORNL, um, and the middle school students do work on the ORAU's campus, but that was impossible this year, so the Incredible team of people that I work with in cooperation with our amazing mentors from ORNL were able to completely reimagine the program and take it from a residential research experience to a completely online research experience. The way that we were able to do that was by sending students and teachers a great big box of research supplies ahead of the program. Everything so they,
2: they needed, right?
3: Exactly. We, we had them create a learning environment in their home, um, which worked out really well because then they were able to meet with their mentors um, using video conferencing and and walk through learning how to use the equipment that they were sent and still complete a research project in the course of two weeks. The students wow. and teachers who participated were overwhelmingly Pleased with the experience that they were able to get, still made personal connections with one another. They were still exposed to career scientists and all kinds of different potential career opportunities ranging from those that require a high school education to those who require a PhD. And that was exactly the goal of the program.
2: And I, I remember talking about this before, you had to make this pivot on the fly basically you had a yeah. very short amount of time right to to make the transition
3: yeah if you'll recall in the spring um, so many people were kind of waiting for this pandemic to end we were everybody was waiting for it to be over oh if we wait a couple more weeks maybe it'll be safe to travel again mm-hmm. and so at the direction of our sponsors we were waiting to see if we could still host the program in person um, so we did this complete reimagining of the program in six weeks. Wow. Um, What do do you think the hardest, hardest part about that was for you guys? I mean, you guys are so good at what you do, um, but, you know, you've done, you're used to the program being a certain way every year. So having to just totally flip a switch, what do you think that the hardest part of this was? Well, you know, anytime that you are, Changing a program from something that you've been doing for years and years to something new, there are uh, a number of challenges. Luckily, uh, the members of the team that I work on are educators, and educators are really great at changing course right in the middle of something because you never know what's going to happen in your classroom and you just (laughs) pivot and you just deal with what you're given. And so that's what we did in this situation. the, the largest challenge that we faced was um, technology. We had a gap in technology knowledge. We had a lot of students who didn't have technology knowledge but also didn't have access. We were dealing with students in rural areas of Appalachia. So we had to provide them not only with laptops and other hardware to be able to access the internet, um, we also had to provide them with a way to get on the internet with a hotspot. But, you know, the people that we were working with were absolutely incredible because these participants found ways to access the internet. We had one teacher who was going to his local library every day because his at-home internet was not working. And so he was on Zoom calls from the library so that he could participate. Wow. Wow it's it's a, speaks volumes about the type of participants that we have in these programs and their desire to participate in something like this that can improve their knowledge
2: that's just amazing i mean i just we've talked endlessly it feels like about you know not just arc but the the other k through 12 programs just how quickly you know you all had to pivot from in person to online and I just how you all are able to do that just blows my mind. <laughs> just I, think it's,
3: I think it's worth mentioning that um, in addition to the ARC program which was very successful we also were able to increase the number of teacher participants that we had in programs overall
2: mm-hmm. because we
3: were able to put all of our teacher professional development online.
2: Right, and you that, had twenty-eight states represented, if I remember correctly.
3: Uh, yeah, something like that. It was it was over half of the states were represented in our in our ORU teacher professional development,
2: which would normally and, be within fifty miles of Oak Ridge for the most. That's part.
3: exactly right. Normally, that program reaches teachers who are able to drive to Oak Ridge, um, and so we were very pleased to have people um, who were calling us from California. They would get on a 9 a.m. call and have their cup of coffee in front of them. And somebody would say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm from California. And everybody would say, wow, you got up at 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. <laughs> to do these Zoom calls.
2: Talk to Dr. Cesari about chemistry. Yeah,
3: yeah that's exactly right. But in addition to that ORAU teacher professional development, we have some teacher professional development that's sponsored by DITRA that we've been mm-hmm. doing this fall. And it's, incredibly popular with teachers because not only are they able to get the knowledge that they need, they they need help right now. I think everyone who's listening understands what's going on with teachers right now. This is one of the most challenging school years that they've ever faced, Um, regardless of if you're a first-year teacher or if you're a 30-year veteran. um, This is like nothing that teachers have ever experienced before.
2: Right. And, so, and it's one thing to pivot from a bunch of snow days. It's a whole other thing. To like.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. To, you
2: know, teaching from home or teaching kids who are home and you're in the classroom or whatever the situation looks like.
3: Yeah. So we've tried to tailor our professional development offerings to be the types of things that teachers are in need of right now. Um, we're teaching them about digital tools that they can use online. We're teaching <laughs> them techniques for doing lab classes virtually, because we can't have kids just not learn lab techniques anymore. Sure. Um, They still need to learn how to do that. And at some point they're gonna be back in a lab and expected to be able to to do things properly. So we're trying to make sure that students don't have that gap in knowledge by filling their teacher's ability to be able to, um, to teach those lessons properly virtually.
2: That is incredible. Um, Craig and Leanne, this, I'm trying to figure out how to word this question because I don't want it to come out, come across as being a criticism, but in terms of our government customers, was, was there resistance, were there different I have to assume different kinds of challenges from sort of what the K through twelve folks faced in terms of making that the pivot to remote work. Um, you know, just institutional structure and you know they weren't they weren't ready for it. Those institutions and agencies weren't ready for it any more than we were. So, you know, were there barriers that had to be overcome to get to the point where you could have 80% of participants working from home or working remotely?
0: Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, I'll take the first step at it and turn it over to Leanne. I, I can say that the process of transitioning from on-site research to virtual or remor- remote-based research was incredibly complex. And, and, and I'm just going to draw back to a couple earlier statements that, that we've made. Uh, it's not like we were working with one facility that had one or two laboratories, Michael. I mean, when, when I, you know, I probably didn't explain it well enough. When we say we work with the Department of Energy, all 17 national labs and many of the headquarters entities, and we work with 20 plus other federal agencies, that doesn't mean it's one location at that twenty, at those twenty plus federal agencies, right? It could be multiple locations. In fact, Leanne, you can correct me here, but there's a few hundred research centers across the U.S. where we have placements. Each of those facilities, they have different issues, different <laughs> problems that they're trying to solve. When it comes to the what we now hope, as you said uh the uh the waning days of the covid-19 pandemic right. so the leadership at those hosting facilities approached things differently we 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 had some uh that were very eager to transition to a virtual remote environment and we had others uh, especially at some of the large user facilities that were that were just trying to understand how they would do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you really needed to be on site at the hosting facility because that's where the toys are uh, <laughs> and that, that's where the materials are. And so it was an incredible challenge for all of us to work together. Um, and I think that's really one of the things I'm most proud of with this team at, at, at all levels, they had 100 plus staff that simply rolled their sleeves up and began that open communication process with all of our points of contact at all these hosting facilities. And it was, how do we help? How do we make sure this is a smooth transition? What do you need to know? What's going to be your pain point? So there was a series of questions that, that we posed and, and, um, uh, we created answers and solutions from that. So Leanne, your thoughts?
1: Well, one thing that we haven't talked about is the complexity that some of our participants are foreign nationals. Um, So not Uh only are they dealing with a pandemic, but dealing with the notion of where do they want to experience this? Do they need to get home? Should they not go home? Uh, Do they need to get home before a certain time? Mm -hmm. Um, How does that impact their appointment? And not only those existing ones, but you know, we are continuing to make new appointments and figuring out ways to bring people in either remotely or in some cases on site again. And what are the considerations that each facility will have to make in terms of bringing on um, new appointments. And again, obviously foreign national appointments are uh, get extra consideration and have extra complexities. Um, so I, I think you're absolutely right, Michael. Each facility is different, and each program is different, it has different um, different complexities because of eligibility requirements and because of the facility itself. And I think uh, the team did an amazing job of keeping things as together as possible. I wanted to circle back just a minute on something Craig talked about: our our kind of our data, our numbers, what we're seeing between comparing FY19 and FY20. And while overall, our FY20 numbers looked pretty strong um, compared to 19, um, with thanks to a lot of great help from the K-12 group and engaging lots of teachers uh, compared to FY19 through all kinds of amazing resources. Um, but, you know, this is a pipeline that we talk about, and that word is perhaps overused, but you know, my concern as a labor economist is really the pipeline that we're building. And um, when I look at the data comparing FY19 and 20, the thing that makes me a little sad is that clearly the undergraduates uh, and their experiences were the ones that that took a hit. Um, you know, I'm looking at about a 40% reduction between FY19 and 20 and undergraduate appointments Um I just think that those are typically short-term summer appointments. We know that summer was really the heat of the pandemic, or at least we thought at that time would be the most critical time. And some chose not to make those appointments. Some did choose to make them virtually, but obviously our numbers were down. So, you know, I think we will have to work hard to make up, uh, you know, we're just a small portion of the pipeline for the STEM workforce, but we are certainly a portion of that pipeline. And if we're not able to keep those undergrads engaged in STEM and keep them with hands-on learning experiences that we know impact their decision to continue on into the STEM workforce, you know, I think there will be a consequence, a a blip uh, in the future that we'll see as a result of this, and we're not surprised by that. We know that this is going to affect us for many years, Uh, many aspects of the pandemic will continue on. So uh, when I see a a 40% reduction in undergrads, about a 25% reduction in our graduate appointments. Again, some of those are summer appointments that didn't happen. Um, You know, I do have concerns. I'm looking at, uh, right now, I'm looking at sort of some language off the Bureau of Labor Statistics website that just talks about their occupational projections and what occupations will be strong. They do tenure projections every year. Um, And they basically have a statement that says, you know, that these projections are meant to to capture structural changes in our economy. So, you know, the first effect that we all will feel and have already felt is what we call the recession impact of the pandemic. But that's not really what these 10-year occupational projections capture. They capture really structural changes in the economy. We don't even really know what that will be yet. Um, You know, those will be driven by consumer demand um, moving forward, you know, pretty much our economy is driven by consumers, uh, goods that get developed and technologies that get developed because of what consumers want and what, what they need. So, you know, even the Bureau of Labor Statistics is saying we're going to have to go in and, and sort of reassess our models because we think there will be structural changes. We're in the process of doing that. We haven't done that yet. There'll be structural changes from the pandemic. So we're still really in the unknown, but, you know, my, my comment is really just about the pipeline and kind of, how do we make sure that we keep that pipeline going? Uh, and, and I think there, you know we're, we're, we're getting back on track. The, we're, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I think we will get back on track, but I think we'll need to work extra hard and our federal sponsors may need to work extra hard to make sure that, that they're training uh, the folks that they need to train to fulfill their needs in the future. Um, and I'm hoping that we'll be a part of that as well. So, but yeah, now many different scenarios, many different uh, facilities several hundred different locations that our participants um, are are typically placed at at any given point. And um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's total, it it could be seen as chaos, but we seem to be managing it fairly well. So. (laughs) Um,
2: You mentioned Leanne, Leanne, the um, Bureau of Labor Statistics and kind of where they are in terms of looking at the, you know, sort of infrastructure in the the, um, world of work. Are there, realizing it's gonna be a while before we know the full impact, are there any ideas at this point of sort of what the hot careers might look like um, as a result of what we've seen sort of what any form of what demand might look like because of what has happened
1: over the last year? Well, you know, I think it's interesting. There's obviously the demand side, but there's also the supply side. And I, I think in some ways that's, that's a little bit um, something that we control a little bit more mm-hmm. because we, we interact with these students and um, I've seen this phenomenal firsthand, this phenomenon firsthand. Uh, i I was you know honored to sort of stand up the first um, education programs for the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11 and we were just amazed at the number of young people that felt compelled to uh, work um, to protect the homeland after 9-11. A total change of direction path and of the best and the brightest and we would advertise an opportunity to participate in a Homeland Security scholarship or fellowship. And we would have a hundred slots and we would get, you know, thousands of applicants and they were all amazing. Um, everyone wanted to do their, to, to, to give back and do their part in helping to prevent anything like 9-11. And I think we'll see young people doing the same thing. I okay. think we'll see Lots of young people excited about the work they can do to help prevent a pandemic and the impacts of the pandemic moving forward. We'll see people that are, you know, lots of students that are interested in things they haven't considered. Obviously, many of them will be in the life sciences, but not all. You know, using data and and artificial intelligence to, to model the pandemic will be a huge, um, you know, epidemiology will be a huge, uh, will have a huge new interest of young people uh, who didn't know what that was prior to the pandemic and probably never considered that as an occupation so I think our students and our young people will drive um, to some degree um, these occupations moving forward by by joining um, the supply of some of these uh, occupations that will be in demand because obviously the federal government will want to invest money uh, in Mm -hmm. you know vaccines and therapeutics and things to Uh, fight new coronaviruses as they develop. And um, so I think that will be interesting to watch as far as a specific career. I don't know that I want to be pinned down to that, a particular occupation, specific occupation. But I think, you know, anything in the data, computer science, life sciences, you know, um, I I see our young people really flocking to that in a way similar to I saw them flocking uh, after 9-11 to occupations that would help us. You know, cybersecurity and those kinds of things that would help us defend our country. I think they'll they'll stand up and take the challenge to to do great things to help prevent another pandemic and and so that the impact will never be as 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 this one was. So I think that'll be interesting to watch yep. happen.
2: That's a heartening thought, isn't it? That because yeah. of this experience, there's you know an opportunity, as you saw with nine eleven, of students being yep. able to do something to sort of give backslash pay it forward. Yep. So we don't end okay. up here again.
1: Sure they will do that.
2: Um this may be a Craig question, but anyone can jump in. Um, one of the things that we talked about briefly in our kind of pre-conversation was, you know, this isn't going to last forever. There will be resulting change, you know, resulting lasting change because of this. Any thoughts on what that looks like? Um, I I know Leanne, you've mentioned a little bit of the supply side for, um, you know, students and and research participants, but are there other things that that are gonna change? One, for the good or the ill, but also, you know, at some point, the world kind of goes back to normal, whatever normal will look like.
0: Yeah, I I can, start and then I'll turn it over to my colleagues and especially Jennifer. She, she's probably going to want to answer in a, in a more practical approach and I'm, I'm going to tell you something that you're probably not expecting and so I think one of the big bonuses to come out of this is that it's, it's really changed our mentality about working from home mm-hmm. and or this remote learning or virtual learning process is one of the good things that's come of this it's that that when we do look at our multi-generational leadership structure at most of the businesses across the U.S. now whether it's you, you still have baby boomer boomers in leadership jobs or gen xers or millennials or what whatever generation that we're talking about now when you look at this now I think the um uh, the desire to authorize and to continue to support some semblance of working from home or remote learning will continue. Um, And I think that will continue for several years after we officially declare that the pandemic is is over. And that's gonna be in part a really good thing that we allow this to continue Um, in, in part, it's going to be a big change from what we're used to mm-hmm. as local economies will continue to be impacted from a workforce that's not commuting in to, let's say, let's say a downtown area or a laboratory area or just an office building somewhere, mm-hmm. a space somewhere where you're going. Um, there's going to be a change, but it's going to still, it's going to enable different types of creativity and innovation moving forward. So I think one of the big changes uh, of this will be that uh, we can do it, and we can do it successfully. We know that we can do it successfully, and we can trust, and maybe that's a big way to, to, to think about this. We can trust that our workforce, especially at OREU, where we just have an outstanding workforce, as you know, We can trust that they're gonna do the right thing even when no one is looking, right? Right. So so I think that's a big thing. I'll I'll, I'll turn it over to Jennifer to to answer as well.
3: Well, my, my answer goes hand in hand with yours, Craig. I absolutely agree that some form of remote learning is going to continue. I don't think that schools are going to find it sustainable to continue in remote learning forever. Um, But I think that one of the big benefits of having to experience remote learning this year is that it's going to allow teachers and schools in general to be more inclusive in the future. No longer are we going to um, have schools who just say, no, we can't accommodate that. You've got to come into school. Mm -hmm. um and send you a packet of work home if you know if you break your leg it's going to allow teachers and school districts to say yes we can work with you we can accommodate whatever's going on with you and in the same way people like like our team doing k-12 outreach are going to be able to be more inclusive no you don't have to travel to be able to attend this we'll bring it to you right Um, And, and I think that that's a really nice thing for everyone. Not only are we reaching more teachers and students, um, but also teachers and students are being able to participate in more things. Mm -hmm. I was
0: just going to make one statement following upon what what Jennifer said in terms of uh, her break a leg comment. I mean, here we are it's it's January as as we are recording this at least in our region there's the possibility of inclement weather Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we we have school districts that are saying that's okay doesn't inclement weather doesn't bother us anymore because we know we have the uh the facility and we have the means to offer instruction uh remotely And we've already had one school district locally that that had had canceled their in-person learning experience in favor of virtual because we do have the technologies available for them to uh, to to work from home.
2: Right. All the kids who flush ice cubes down the toilet and wear their pajamas backwards for a snow day (laughs) just got disappointed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll add one comment about kind of the future, and you know, I think economists talk about sort of sea changes, and we talk about the industrial revolution when we went from a agricultural economy to an industrial economy, and you know, I think probably the 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 internet uh, and the changes of the internet, and and this may be seen as just really an extension of the internet because that's what really allows us all to work remotely and to to connect virtually. We've been doing that in a slow, slow snail's pace in some ways now. We realize it was a snail's pace uh, for a while, but I I do think that this will be seen in time as as the year that we really truly, um, you know, embraced, and and it will be seen as a sea change in the way we do business and exchange information and, and function. But I do also want to mention that, you know, there are estimates of how many jobs are are it where it's appropriate to work from home. And while we feel like that must be all jobs out there because we all are working fairly productively from home, really most estimates are that about 40% of jobs um, are feasible to work from home. Um, And, you know, obviously the service industry is a significant part of the 60% that don't, but the other significant part of the 60% that don't is the manufacturing sector. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're not, we're not, I don't see that changing significantly in our lifetimes. And manufacturing is such a critical part. Um, even if you think that manufacturing will change and will become more advanced, like our advanced manufacturing facilities, you know, those do require, um, you know, people being in a physical location to take it, to have access to those kinds of technologies to do that. So I think. We will have significant people working from home, but I don't think that we will we will we will ever be to the point that you know those industries, the service industry, the manufacturing industry, those kinds of sectors, um, you know, will primarily go back full full scale working uh, at a physical location. So I think that will. Um, that will temper our excitement about all of this virtual uh, working from home as time we realize that, that a lot of our peers and friends and family members are not able to work from home really over the long term.
0: Just think about though, I mean, e- even in our industry with uh, research and in, in this, uh, this notion of that one needs to be in the wet lab or near the toys, I think what we're gonna find and correct me if I'm wrong here, we're gonna find that a lot of the support staff for these laboratories, they continue to work from home for quite some time. Um, Name me a laboratory that doesn't have space issues. Name me a university that doesn't have space issues. So uh, I just foresee some of the support areas working from home with uh, principal investigators, the research staff on site. Do you see that differently, Leanne?
1: No, I agree. I think the support staff are part of that 37 to 40%, even if they're at a laboratory, if they're support staff, there's a a reasonable chance they can work from home. But um, yeah, so I I agree. Those are part of that 40% that can work from home. And sure, even at manufacturing facilities, there'll be some staff that will be able to work from home. But I I think that, you know, we're still going to be in a majority situation of people whose jobs don't allow them to work from home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think we're going to all have to, you know, beef up our technology and beef up our our ability to communicate remotely um, in a way like we never have before. So, you know.
2: Thank you for that, Leanne. That makes perfect sense um, <clears throat> as we continue to move forward. Um, one of the discussion points that we had in our pre-conversation was the notion of someone having to lead us out of you know this mess this whatever we whatever we want to call it um is it are we all leading each other are we all sort of taking steps forward together is there I mean, I'd like to think that we're a leader, uh, you know, in terms of um, helping our customers, you know, move along this um, spectrum of work from home to work in work from work. Um, but is there a clear leader? Is, is there someone who, sh- who should be leading the charge? Is that us? Um, all those questions
0: yeah well i mean I'm not sure I have the right answer but it it's it's been fun to watch as as kind of leanne has has talked about back in 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 two thousand two or or whenever you know after nine eleven um it's been fun to watch people volunteer and step up to fight the pandemic mm-hmm. and I would say at, at multiple levels there's been leaders um you know a, across the united states from uh, those that are in the healthcare industry to those that are in the research lab trying to find a vaccine or, or, or a therapeutic to fight uh, to fight the virus i will also say to those frontline retail workers who very on in the beginning uh, they didn't waver from their duty, their jobs. Just right. think about the local 16-year-old or 15-year-old at bagging groceries for you in March and April of 2020 when we had no idea really what the mortality rate or morbidity rate of, of this virus was going to be. Right. And so in my opinion, those were all leaders too. Mm -hmm. When you look at what we are doing and what we've done in order to transition to this virtual learning environment for federal internships and research experiences, we're certainly a leader in this space. We've developed processes and procedures, training programs that have allowed our our students, our researchers to function very well uh, remotely. and we've been able to positively impact the uh, the PI staff in, in, a, in a way to where we've helped them transition as well. So, um, you know, I'm, I know I'm biased here, but, but certainly we've been a leader um, in this space as well. Leanne, Jennifer?
1: I'll just say I think our federal customers have been leaders as well. Um, you know, I know particularly with um, the Department of Energy, the Office of Science, they are they they have a, a team that's looking at the impact of COVID on their research initiatives, uh, their PIs, you know, they're they're collecting data, they're assessing and, and systematically trying to measure the impact and plan for the future to for the, the research to get back on track, back on progress, uh, additional budget if needed, if if available. Um, so I'm really impressed with their um with their uh, leadership and their organization to really pivot and take this on and and try to make the most of what we have now that we're moving on the other side of it and uh, move forward with limited impact. So they seem to be very on top of this, uh, uh, maybe not what the media would have us think. But in in my opinion, I'm confident that our federal stakeholders are doing a great job uh, and leading us through this.
2: Awesome. That's fabulous. Thank you for that comment.
3: Yeah, I Janet. think that I, I agree with both Craig and Leanne um, and ORU has been leading for our customers and developing our programming. And particularly in the K-12 group, we have been able to help teachers, but what we're also experiencing is teachers helping one another mm-hmm. and I hate to be cliche and say, you know, everyone's a leader, but in, in what we're experiencing right now, we're seeing all of these heartwarming stories about people who figure something out, sharing it with other people. And instead of just figuring it out for ourselves and hanging on to something, people are sharing what they've learned and sharing their solutions to, to help us to move past, um, the isolation that a lot of people are feeling and the struggles that people are feeling while they're alone and adjusting to working from home or learning from home or hybrid models or fear from going to school in person, fear of the virus, fear of transmitting it to um, your elderly relatives. But, But people are coming up with solutions and sharing them with one another and making a difference. And I think that's a really nice thing to see come out of
2: this as a result. Mm -hmm. And just from a practical perspective, Jennifer, going back to the early days of the pandemic, we had Renee Powell who, you know, during the PPE shortage figured out a way to 3D print PPE on the, you know, printers that she won as part of extreme classroom makeover. And even you all, you know, the K through 12 team, you know, you all were 3D printing, um, mask extenders, you know, for the same purpose, because people needed them, and we could do it. So, you know, there have been many levels of leadership across the board, and and some of those heartwarming stories that you mentioned.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I think that it's important for us, as we kind of have pandemic fatigue, to remember the good things that did come out of it, Um, and and to realize that people can be better than what we expect of them. Mm -hmm.
2: I love that. People can be better than what we expect them. Um, So last question. I think this is obvious. I mean, this has been a test of our resiliency. It's been a test of from a corporate perspective, from an education perspective, from a, our customers, you know, hosting facilities perspective, um, it seems like we're resilient as heck.
3: Absolutely. i I've, I've speaking for the K-12 team that I get to work with every day. Um, we have been extremely resilient in what we were able to do. And the teachers and students that we work with have been resilient. We're not giving up. We're not going to let um, something keep us from teaching and learning.
0: Awesome. I will, I will say, Michael, that, um, again, I, we're going to go back to March of, of 2020 when our president, Andy Page, gave us the order to uh, to quarantine and to work from home. And within two days, we had successfully taken not only the overwhelming majority, I think 90% of ORU staff home we, we did so in a way to where we were we were almost 100% functional um, as soon as our keyboard began to talk
2: <laughs> right so we, right we,
0: we were resilient and, and that's a testament to the staff that's a testament to their hard work to their their dedication to the mission um, and so that's my shameless plug to them Just saying uh, a thank you. They've heard me say it over and over, but uh, thanks once again.
2: All right. Well, thank you all so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Michael. Jennifer.
2: (laughs) Thank you all. Have a great rest of your day.
1: Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the ORISE Feature Cast. To learn more about the O'Cristian Institute for Science and Education, visit orise.orau.gov or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ORISE Connect.